I've just come back from the swampland, from the land of muck and mire, where the earth is a ditch of blood and pitch and iron and flesh and fire. I've been up to my knees in waters that freeze and suck out the lives of men, while the shells shriek by and you pray to die. And I'm going back again. Today marks the 50th anniversary of one of the most blessed moments in the history of all mankind, the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month of the year 1918, the end of four years of nameless terror known as the War to End Wars. The armistice was in effect, and each year thereafter, November 11th was observed as Armistice Day, a day to honor those who had given their lives in the Great War. Now, of course, Armistice Day is called Veterans Day, with remembrance of wider application as Americans rendered tribute to all who have served their country in all battles, from revolutionary time to the present. These 193 years have witnessed the dramatic saga of America's stand against tyranny, against any and all who would usurp the freedom that the United States has always symbolized throughout the world. But considering the significance of this particular November 11th, this special Veterans Day program will confine itself to perhaps the most brutal of all conflicts, the struggle in memory of which this day originally was set aside as a holiday. This is the end of the war to end wars. To document World War I, we shall peer through both ends of the periscope for the broad distant view as well as for the close-up of the decisive American contribution as expressed through the emotions of the men of the AEF, their own poetry from the pages of the Stars and Stripes of the First World War. In 1918, Stripes ran a column of poems in every issue, poems composed by the Doughboys themselves, capturing the spirit, the privation, and the horror of life and death on the flaming Western Front. Where have I been and what have I seen? Towns and such, is that what you mean? That sort of answer is easy to give, but to put in words the lives we live, the actual things we've all been through, to picture, well, just gas to you, is more than anyone can do. What is it like up on the line? 
Have you got a couple of years of time to spend while I describe one fight and endeavor to word the matter right so you may know without being there how the machine gun lads and the doughboys fare or the cooties go crawling everywhere? How does it feel to go over the top? I can shrug up my shoulders, but then I must stop. Oh, we know all right, as a mother knows, how it feels to her when one boy goes and doesn't return. Some of us do and some of us don't each time when it's through. You'll have to wait till it happens to you. It was true that to understand what it was like in the front lines, it simply had to happen to you personally. That's why most of the poems concerned themselves not with broad generalizations, but with particular sensations or incidents, unforgettable incidents. Have you ever sat in your hole with only a few logs and some dirt over you? And heard the screech of one of Jerry's 77s. And heard that screech change to a moan. And heard that moan grow louder. And know it was going to fall near you. And look out and see it land right at the entrance of your hole and not explode. No? Then you have something to live for. The terror of the interminable shelling was a favorite theme of the doughboys of World War I. The shelling and the filthy, agonizing life in the trenches. Did you ever hear a bullet whiz or dodge a hand grenade? Have you watched long lines of trenches dug by doughboys with a spade? Have you seen the landscape lighted up at midnight by a shell? Have you seen a hillside blazing forth like the furnace room in hell? Have you heard the crump crumps whistling? Do you know the dud shells grunt? Have you played rat in a dugout? Then you've surely seen the front. In revealing some of the thoughts of American doughboys, we have leapfrogged ahead of the chronological sequence of the First World War. The United States entered the war in 1917, but the war began in 1914. At that time, all the horrors of modern warfare were unknown. In fact, all European capitals greeted the outbreak of hostilities with great enthusiasm. Nationalism was rampant, and the people envisioned a romantic storybook war. The cavalry carried lances, officers carried sabers, Soldiers wore no iron helmets. In fact, helmets were considered unmanly. That will give you some concept of the general comprehension of war at that time. And so you can imagine the armies marching to the front. There were cheers, waving flags, pounding drums, and flowers being strewn in the path of the troops. But then the shocking realization of truth. High explosives never before seen. Flamethrowers, poison gas, rapid-firing machine guns, magazine rifles, trench mortars, airplanes, and ultimately, tanks. Most of these and other modern weapons of destruction pulverized the soldiers of all sides as Germany invaded France through Belgium, thereby drawing England into the war. The Russian steamroller attacked Germany, and Austria attacked Italy. In the west, the Germans drove to within 30 miles of Paris, where, with their lines of supply deeply extended and with the French rushing reserves to the front in taxicabs, they were stopped on the Marne River. It was one of the most heroic defenses of the war. Meanwhile, the Russians were smashing forward in East Prussia in the general direction of Berlin. 
But at a place called Tannenberg, Hindenburg and Ludendorff outgeneraled the Russians, lured them into a trap and subjected them to a disastrous defeat. A defeat of such proportions, Russia was never again able to mount a serious offensive in German territory. With these big drives stopped, the Holocaust began. The war of attrition, the war of the trenches, where, particularly on the Western Front, advances were to be measured in yards, not miles, for four long years. Before it was over, 20 million people were to have a rendezvous with death. Most titanic battles of World War I were fought in defense of the mutilated town of Verdun and along the bloody banks of the Somme River. It is important for us to know some of the details of these convulsive struggles because it gives us insight into the character and incredible courage of the American soldiers who were to come later. Incredible courage because when the doughboys arrived in Europe, the carnage of modern war was no longer a surprise. They understood the magnitude of their mission because they knew of the meat grinder annihilation that had taken place earlier, particularly at Verdun and the Somme. For the opening barrage of their offensive at Verdun in 1916, the German army moved in 1,300 trainloads of shells to feed 1,200 big guns lined up axle to axle for as far as the eye could see. The resulting drum fire continued without let-up for days, and it was so intense it could be heard as far away as Koblenz, Germany. This awesome shelling was intended to obliterate the French army, 
But when the siege lifted and the infantry moved forward, there were still enough French alive to emerge from caverns beneath ancient forts surrounding Verdun and throw the Germans back. The stirring French motto was, they shall not pass. And after five months of attack, they didn't. But with over one million dead in this battle, the French army was never the same again. Flanders Fields, the second battle of the Somme. To prepare to go over the top, the British poured five million shells into German positions, an area which had been reclaimed marshland. The shell fire destroyed the drainage and turned the terrain into a veritable sea of hissing, churning slime. A huge sucking bog. Men, animals and machines slowly slipped down and disappeared. Dugouts were flooded, trenches caved in and collapsed. The mud was everywhere. It caked a man's body until he could hardly support his own weight. It clung to his eyes and mouth and its diseased substance, crawling with every conceivable germ and parasite, swept through both armies like the Black Plague. A scratch invited gangrene. A minor wound meant amputation. In the sinuous bowels of that sewer, men not only lost their lives, but their sanity. After three years of such privation, the morale of the French and English was something else that had just about sunk out of sight. The French particularly were in trouble. After having been bled almost to extinction at Verdun, and after hundreds of thousands more men were slaughtered in subsequent offenses, the French army was through as an attacking force. The poilus, as the French soldiers were called, threw down their arms and refused to fight. Had the Germans known the extent of mutiny, they could have easily broken through to Paris. But that was their last chance to take advantage of sagging Allied morale. Because soon... On April 6, 1917, the United States ended the war. Troopship after troopship began landing at Saint-Nazaire, Le Havre, and Brest. They were given a tumultuous reception, and as they marched, the doughboys were joined by great crowds, many women forcing their way into the ranks and swinging along arm-in-arm with the men. The French morale was soaring.
The Yanks did not go right to the front. First, they required advanced training, and for this, they headed for training centers. They traveled by boxcars, and they roared laughing when they saw them. Each of the little cars was marked Am 40, Chavot 8, which, in case your French is rusty, 40 men or 8 horses. One man wrote home saying, It was great to find a place to sleep. If a pretzel manufacturer had a photograph of that bunch trying to sleep, he certainly could have picked out some beautiful designs for his product. We had three days and two nights of that. Another man immortalized these French boxcars in poetry. Row, row, row over the rails of France. See the world and its map unfurled. Five centimes in your pants. What a noble trip, jolt and jog and jar. Forty we with equipment C and one flat-wheeled boxcar. Hit the floor for bunk, six ohms to one ohms place. It's no fair to the bottom layer to kick him in the face. Move the corporal's feet out of my left ear. Lay off, Sarge, you're much too large. I'm not a bedsack, dear. Roll, 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 yammer and snore and fight. Traveling zoo the whole day through and bedlam all the night. Four days in the cage going from hither hence. Ain't it great to ride by freight at good old Unc's expense? After the Yanks completed their advanced training, they went up the line, and they got acquainted with bombardment for the first time. They found that the shelling made sleeping impossible. They also got acquainted with something even worse so far as sleep was concerned. We've slept in barns and barracks, in the mud and in the rain. We've slept in broken buildings everywhere in each campaign. We've bunked with cooties rampant. We've slept on lousy straw. And we've slept where shells have whistled in dugouts, but... Of, well, we've hit a new place since we've wiggled up the line. We're sleeping in a hen house, and say the sleeping's fine. That is, we sleep when all is quiet and shells aren't overhead. Be it known, we'll nap or slumber when the cooties aren't in bed. For no matter where you travel, and no matter where you roam, the doughboy's got a partner. There's a cootie in his home. On the subject of cooties, here's a quote from Stars and Stripes' letters to the editor section. The cooties who are with the doughboys are game, courageous, and true. They'll stick to a man under shell fire, and they'll keep him in motion when he longs for sleep. Machine gunners who know how to sweep the enemy's front line with their rat-tat-tat have yet to learn the law of separation, for neither hun, shrapnel, nor changing weather can subdue the cootie. He is there to last. One Yank who has been up the line and who saw plenty of fireworks very soberly wrote home, I have not yet seen a single cootie in France. They're all married and have large families. Goodbye, Broadway. Hello, France. 
This was one of the biggest songs of World War I, and the arrangement you're hearing is the authentic instrumentation and voicing that was common with most bands of that period. It's an inspiring song, a happy song, and as in every war, however brutal, humor somehow always makes its presence known. Here's a good example. Why is it that from yonder tower the colonel's lamp is beaming still? Though it's past the midnight hour and all serene o'er vale and hill, tis not the wisdom of the sages, nor army lore his mind enchants. An earthlier task his mind engages. He's sewing buttons on his pants. I was like the child who believed there was a Santa Claus but never had seen him. Only I have seen another world and know it exists. I used to think that there was only one world, a world of mud and bursting shells which killed and wounded me and my pals. A world of hissing bullets and mustard gas and cold, sleepless nights and no food for days and Huns who cried, Kamerad, when their ammunition was gone and filthy clothes, and cooties, and cooties, and cooties. But now I know that there is also a world of clean sheets and pajamas, and good food, and plenty of it, and kind, gentle women in white to give you cocoa and soup, and doctors who give you more than CC pills, and peaceful days without a single shell, and peaceful nights, and officers who wear white collars, and have only heard of cooties and visitors who sit on your bed and murmur, how thrilling, and streetcars and taxis and buildings without a single shell hole in them, and everything I only dreamed of before. Gosh, it's a wonderful war back here. Once I heard a father ask his soldier son, why can't you advance like other boys have done? You've been a private mighty love. Won't you tell me what is wrong? And then the soldier lad said, listen to me, Dad. I'd rather be a private than a colonel in the army. A private has more fun when his day's work is done. And when he goes on hikes, in every town he strikes. Girls discover him and just smother him with things he likes. But girlies act so shy when colonel passes by. He holds his head so high. So would you rather be a colonel with an eagle on your shoulder Or a private with a chicken on your knee Oh, step right up, boys, don't be shy We've got to keep the glow in old glory And the free in freedom America needs you like a mother And would you turn your mother
one way to escape the mud and the slime and the eternal shelling of the front line was to become wounded or to join the air service. The aviators of World War I led an adventurous life, a romantic life, and they lived far behind the trenches, back where a man could be billeted in a house, back where there was warmth, back where there were clean sheets and a real bed, back where there was food and even drink. The aviators were the envy of everyone. Oh, the life of a flyer may surely be gay, for he sings with his heart beating strong, and he drifts on the breezes beneath the white wave where the zephyrs play lightly in song. There's never a worry nor even a thought what the ending is likely to be. At the wave of the flag, he's off like a shot and is cheerfully happy and free. Not a fear that he'll meet with an unhappy fate, for he flies with the best in the blue. He'll fight to the last, so the shadows must wait and the devil must fight for his due. Not a sigh nor a sorrow nor even a care has a flyer who climbs to his height, for he longs for the chance of a duel in air and to show that he's game in the fight. It's the game that he loves from beginning to end, and he lives like a pirate at sea. So let's drink to the health of our buccaneer friend, for he's cheerfully happy and free. Yes, the aviator, or the sky jazzer as he was sometimes called, was very often happy and free, but he was also very often dead. Do you know what the pilot's average longevity was over the western front? Two weeks. Two weeks, ladies and gentlemen. Two weeks. Some men lasted for months before being killed, some even for a year or two. But this merely points up their individual ability, the care with which they prepared, or more likely, their luck. Eddie Rickenbacker was America's ace of aces with 26 kills, which put him in a tie with a German ace by the name of Hermann Goering. Neither, however, was close to the record of the famous Red Baron, Manfred von Richthofen, who destroyed over 80 enemy planes, or even a number of French or English pilots. Nevertheless, it is significant that Rickenbacker scored his 26 triumphs in only about six months of frontline flying, the fastest victory pace of them all. The men who served their time in the clouds were but a handful compared to the millions in and immediately behind the trenches below. There, nighttime was for patrols to go out into no man's land, time for the guard on the fire step to be alert, to stare into the inky blackness, searching for the enemy. The sun goes down behind the hill for half an hour. All is still. The sky grows dark, the stars appear. We watch the moon through cloudlets steer. We hear the rumble of the wheels of ration carts with store for meals, and then a flare's great flaming ray turns brooding night to broad midday. Next, we hear machine guns fire. They cut into the foe's barbed wire, 100 rounds, and then they cease. Again, there's no man's land of peace. In dugouts deep, the tired men snore while big rats run across the floor, and one man twists from left to right. It's hard to sleep when cooties bite. The breeze wafts over no man's land. The martial strains of a martial band. The Huns, no doubt, rejoice in glee or tales of transports sunk at sea. But our guns spot that German band, 
the gas shells scream war no man's land for 15 minutes. And all still. And no more music behind the hill. Day now breaks. The shift is done. The daylight fights lure not the hunt. We thank our stars. An easy stunt. A quiet night on the western front. In every war, in moments of quiet, a man's heart is apt to wander, to wander home, as expressed by this poem from Stars and Stripes called A Doughboy Thinks of Love. I'm sitting in my dugout and waiting for my chow. I think they'll get it through tonight. The Bosch is quiet now somewhere in France. We gave them Boku shells today. We'll give them gas tonight. And I'm oiling up my rifle. I carry on the fight somewhere in France. But through all this great adventure at twilight every eve, my heart pleads guilty to the charge of absent without leave somewhere in France. Three letters left a village bound for somewhere over there. Three letters to a lonesome soldier lad. Each one a loving story told. Each one was worth its weight in gold. Three messages that made his poor heart It's a soldier. It always has, and World War I was no exception. It is for you. Through endless nights of mud and rain, he stubbornly plods on, head down, back bent beneath his pack, on towards the shell-streaked sky and maddening roar where truth and lies and love and hate and life and death all meet in war, red war. He loves and hates, and so he fights. To all his love be true. Guard well your heart. Keep the faith. He fights for you. So far as we have touched on the matter of love in wartime, we have considered only the girl back home. But what of the girl on the scene? In the First World War, that girl would most likely be French. And of course, that presented the same language barrier that has always faced American soldiers abroad. However, as always, the barrier was usually surmounted, but not without some minor frustrations as indicated by this poem called When Private Mugrams Parlez-Vous. 
I can count my francs and son teams if I've got a basket in the air and I speak a wicked bonjour. But the verbs are awful queer and I lose a lot of pronouns when I try to talk to you. For your eyes are so bewitching, I, I forget the parlez-vous. In your pretty little garden with the bench beside the wall and the sunshine on the asters and the purple flock so tall, I, I should like to whisper secrets, but my language goes askew with a second-person plural for the more familiar two. In your pretty little garden, I could always say, je t'aime, but it ain't so very subtle and it ain't not quite the same as you've got some dandy earrings or your eyes are nice and brown. My adjectives get manly right before a lady noun. Those infinitives perplex me. I can say, you're très jolie, but beyond that simple statement, all my tenses don't agree. I can make the bosch compreni when I meet him in a trench, but the softer things escape me when I try to yap in French. In your pretty little garden, darn the idioms that dance on your tongue so sweet and rapid. Ah, oh, they hold me in a trance. Though I stutter and I stammer in your garden on a bench, yet my heart is writing poems when I talk to you in French. Mademoiselle from moment, you se voulez-vous? Mademoiselle from moment, you se voulez-vous? Comme elle lui répondit oui, elle eut un très gentil mari, Mademoiselle from month of July 1918, the German armies exploded in an enormous offensive that threatened to win the war before America's full strength was assembled. As in the first weeks of the conflict, the Allies were pushed back, and in fact, German arms were once again at the Marne River, almost within sight of the Eiffel Tower. At that moment, American Marines and Army doughboys were thrown into the breach. Though shells be bursting all around, though myriad corpses heap the ground, Though hell itself fling back the sound, Americans don't give. Staunch in the strength of conscious might, calm in the mail of radiant right, piercing the shroud of cheerless night, they die, but never give. It is said that the Marne ran red with American blood. They died, but they did not give. The German army was thrown back, then driven back, never, as it developed, to threaten Paris again. The fields of the Marne are growing green. The river murmurs on and on. No more the hall of mitrailleurs. The cannon from the hills are gone. The herder leads the sheep afield where grasses grow or broken blade, and toil-worn women till the soil or human mold in sunny glade. 
The splintered shell and bayonet are lost in crumbling village wall. No sniper scans the rim of hills, no sentry hears the night bird call. From blood-wet soil and sunken trench, the flowers bloom in summer light. And farther down the veil beyond, the peasant's smiles are sad, yet bright. The wounded Marne is growing green. The gash of Hun no longer smarts. Democracy is born again. But what about the wounded hearts? American troops moved east for an engagement southeast of Verdun to clear the Saint-Mihil salient. They traveled by night, they traveled by day, regardless of the weather, to reach the front lines. Rain and mud with a spray of blood, a moaning wind through the shattered trees. Rain and mud and the endless thud and crash that comes from the big H.E.s. It isn't for fun and it isn't for fame. We plunge to the big advance, but it's all in the game. It's all in the game till the Hun gets out of France. A rain-soaked night and a bitter fight where the dripping trees sing a dismal song, where the flash of guns give the only light the Yank can use as he drives along. It isn't the life that a man might claim over the bloody sod, but it's all in the game. It's all in the game till the final camarade. In the first major assault of the war by American troops exclusively, the Doughboys drove the German troops out of the salient they'd held for over four years. And then the order was out to move immediately to new positions northwest of Verdun. Something even bigger was in the mill. At this time, a letter to the editor was printed by the Stars and Stripes, a letter that gives some insight into the composition of the American army. The letter said, There are today nearly 200,000 colored men from the United States on French soil in the American army. They came cheerfully, yes, eagerly, to help make good President Wilson's declaration, We enter this war to make the world safe for democracy. Among these nearly 200,000 colored soldiers are many 100% families, families out of which every male, as in mine, my three sons are here at the front, is in the service. When German militarism has been crushed beyond possible restoration, and in consequence the oppressed peoples of the world have had the yoke of oppression lifted from them, the colored American soldiers, such as survive, will as eagerly return to our country as they came hence, and with the consciousness of having served well their country and civilization. The United States is our country. Its flag is our flag, the only country and flag we know, and for which we, as a race, stand ready and willing to mingle our last drop of blood with the blood our white brothers so bravely sacrificed for the honor and glory of the United States of America. Where do we go from here, boys? Where do we go from here? They didn't know, but they were heading for the Mules Argonne. There's a rumble and a jumble and a bumping and a thud as I awaken from my restless sleep here in my bed of mud and pull my blankets tighter underneath my shelter fly and I listen to the thunder of the trucks rolling by. They're jumping and they're humping through the inky gloom of night and I wonder how them drivers see without a glimmer light. I can hear the clutches roaring as they throw the gears in high and the radiators bawling as the trucks go rolling by. There's some of Dragon Cannons. You can spot the sound all right. The rumbling ones as heavy and the rattling ones as light. 
The clinking gel is pointing up their noses at the sky. Oh, you can tell what passengers the trucks go rolling by. Some singing songs is when I left, they wasn't even right. A showing that these rookies when he got a service strike. But just the same, they're good old Yanks, and that's the reason why I likes the jazz and barbershop where the trucks are rolling by. Just God and General Pershing knows where these here birds are light, where them pumping trucks is bound for under camouflage night. When they can't take arrow pictures with their focus in the sky of our changes of location, by the trucks are rolling by. So although my bed is puddled and I'm soaked through to the hide, my heart's out with them doughboys on their bouncing, singing ride. They're bound for paths of glory or perhaps to fight and die. God bless that Yankee cargo and the trucks are rolling by. In late September 1918, all Allied armies began an enormous attack on German positions. To give you some idea of the weight of this attack, the American First Army, consisting of one and one-half million men, was wedged into one tiny 20-mile front. It went over the top on September 26th, and it was the beginning of the end of the war to end wars. But the resistance was devastating. They're gassed and shelled and tortured. They're muddy, thin and weak. They're shot and shot and shattered. And you marvel when they speak. They will give their all in battle that the world may be made free. And their smiles amidst their sorrows are miracles to see. And then it was over. The 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month, 1918. How happy is tonight when all thy hills rest from the buffeting of years of strife. How happy is tonight when all thy dead rest in the victory they have bought with life. How happy is tonight when all the world, freed from the agony and threat of war, rests for a morrow, peaceful, Evermore. Yes, it was over. And we have won. of the chattel to the far Swiss frontier pass for 300 miles of battle, wire, and mud. From the flaming front of Belgium to the lines that niche Alsace with the lease that gives us tenure written blood. From Amont, rewon and righted. From Sedan, revenged for I to the bulwark of the centuries, Verdun. Falls a sweet and stranger silence and the red roar dies away. We have won. We have won. We have won by the martyrdom of mothers and the children that they bore, by the skeleton of Louvain and its kin, by the prisoners of Vimy where their charnel corridor told the hail we owe the soldiers of Berlin, by the lives we put behind us 
by the memories we keep of the men who marched with us, whose races run, by the thousands of their crosses where their ranks are still in sleep. We have won. We've won. We've won. So we quit the battered trenches, so we leave the stricken field, and the ancient load is lifted as we move. And the flags whose wake we followed that have forced the Hun to yield bless the columns swinging on. They ride above. Oh, the hungry guns are muzzled, and the steel is sheathed in cold, and the land of France is shining in the sun. We are back to home and fireside, all we staked ourselves to hold. We've won. We have won. We have won. Keep them down on the farm after they've seen Perry. And what a time to see him. Paris had gone crazy. A hundred years of New Year's Eve's all rolled together. The war was over. The war was won. The lights were on again after four long years. And the city of light went absolutely delirious. Every American on the streets was treated as a great individual hero. Because every American was a symbol of victory. Victory that could not have been achieved without the Yanks. Gonna keep them down on the farm after they've seen Paris. How you gonna keep them away from Broadway, jazzing around, painting the town? How you gonna keep them away from harm? That's the mystery. Imagine Reuben when he meets his car. He'll kiss his cheek and holler, ooh la la. How you gonna keep him out of Berlin now that they've seen Paris? Did you ever see two Yankees parked upon a foreign shore? When the good ship's just about to start for old New York once more? Give my regards to Broadway. Remember me, the Herald Square. And all the gang at 42nd Street, and I will soon be there. With Colonel Howe, I yearn in to mingle with the old-time throng. Give my regards to old Broadway and say that I'll be there along. Hundreds of thousands of American troops began the return trip home. These were the ones who were sending their regards to Broadway. It was an exciting time, a happy time. But there was an accounting that remained to be made. 
the impact of the accounting would not be felt until the individual doughboy arrived once again back in his old hometown. Last night, neath a street lamp, I silently stood on the same corner back in that old neighborhood. As I gazed at the houses unchanged by the years, in my throat came a lump, and my eyes filled with tears. I looked at the lamppost, the pump, and the stoop, and again I could picture us kids in a group. There were Shorty and Yeller and Skinny and Mike, and the rich kid who had ball-bearing skates and a bike. And the first thing we knew, we were all 21, but the gang stuck together in fight or in fun. And then came the war, the crowds in the street, the blast of the bugle, the tramp of the feet, and the gang, that old gang of mine, was the first gang that hit the von Hindenburg line. In the woods they called Rouge Bouquet, there's a new-made grave today, built by never a spade or pick, yet covered by earth ten meters thick. There lie many fighting men, dead in their youthful prime, Never to laugh or live again or taste of the summertime. For death came flying through the air and stopped his flight at the dugout stair, touched his prey and left them there, clay to clay. Now over the grave, abrupt and clear, three volleys ring, and perhaps their brave young spirits here go to sleep. Go to sleep. But the war is all over, and last night as I stood on the same corner, back in that old neighborhood, I couldn't help brushing a tear from my eye, for I knew not a face in the crowds that went by. Gone forever are the pals that I love. There isn't a trace or a sign of that regular, honest-to-goodness old bunch that I call that old gang of mine. But I'd give the world to see that old gang of mine. There is on earth no worthier grave to hold the bodies of the brave than this spot of pain and pride, where they nobly fought and nobly died. And up to heaven's doorway floats from the woods called Rouge Bouquet, a delicate sound of bugle notes that softly say, Farewell, farewell. Comrade True, born anew, peace to you. Your soul shall be where the heroes are, and your memory shine like the morning star. Brave and dear, shield us here. Farewell.
This tribute to the gallant Americans who fought and fell in France in the name of liberty and freedom has been a commemoration by the American Forces Network Europe on this, the 50th anniversary of the end of the war to end wars. <laughs>